0: We are uh, looking at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. Find your way there if you're not there already. Isaiah 53, 2. We have published for you the outline in the bulletin to make things a little bit easier. I want to say that uh, as time marches on toward life's finale, where the Lord returns to bring an end to world history and judges the living and the dead... We slog through these dreadful end times for the glory of God and the benefit of the church. We are, as we're doing that, finding the terrain, I think, of our spiritual race change quickly and dramatically. Much of it, of late, has been unforgiving and arduous, if I can speak figuratively, of our spiritual race for a moment, kind of in the fashion of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, it seems as though we're running uphill most of the time, where the air gets thin and the terrain or ground more uneven, the weather more extreme. In addition to that, the evil one tempts us to slow down, even stop, by strategically placing along the track rest areas scenic views, and of course detours that promise an easier and safer run, but really leads to the broad road of destruction. And then there are the sideline distractions, as I call them, designed to tempt us to veer off course and become spiritually lazy, apathetic, and inactive. You know, they're comprised of uh, the worries of tomorrow, food, clothing, shelter, all of which God, of course, promises to give us as we strive for the kingdom. Also, they include the pleasantries of life under the sun that the world holds in high regard. Wealth, prosperity, ease of life. Currently, in our uh, country, we see also safety and acceptance, freedom, rights, a trustworthy government. Now, according to Jesus' gospel, all these things... Take a back seat to him as the greatest object of our affections. His word, his will, glory, kingdom are really to be our preoccupation. <clears throat> and you no doubt know this, but we cannot be reminded enough, I think, of its practical outworking in our lives as the race gets tougher and more dangerous to run in these last days. And it'll only get worse. You could be sure of that. I want to encourage you then, on this Lord's Day, I want to encourage you to stay the course with a biblical principle that is just as familiar as the first one I first great tr- truth that I mentioned. And it's this: The most deplorable situations in life imaginable cannot be excuses for spiritual laziness, apathy, inactivity but rather should be the greatest incentive for zealous service and fruitful ministry. And I would like to defend that principle. And I want to do it in in the style of the Puritans. Do it with five propositions that come from Isaiah 53.2. So again, let's turn our attention to that particular verse, Isaiah 53, verse 2. It reads this way. He grew up before him, that is God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. Isaiah 53.2 With that verse in mind, as I say, I want to give five propositions. When I say... Propositions, I mean, these are truths that come from the verse. So when you read the verse, you should be able to come up with this proposition. Hopefully, they make sense to you as you look at the verse. So here's the first one. In light of what we've just read, first proposition is this The most deplorable situations are divinely appointed. The most deplorable situations are divinely appointed. As we come to this verse, we're struck right away with the fact that God is the content of this servant's life. That is to say, God is his background. God's everywhere at all times, at all places. He's inescapable. And that's because from the very beginning, God created life to revolve around him and for human beings to be His representatives. They're His image bearers. They were created to represent Him. And that's what I mean by God being the context of life. Now, this is still true. It hasn't changed. God holds people, therefore, responsible to bear His image perfectly. That's what he holds everybody responsible to do, bear his image perfectly. This goes for everyone. It makes no difference if someone rejects God and lives his life as, as if God didn't exist. Try as he may, God is still the context of his life. He cannot escape the fact that he's made in the image of God and has moral responsibility and that everything he does will communicate to the world something about the God in whose image he made. Well, but he'll do the absolute poorest job of representing God in his life, especially if he's a professing atheist. Yes, he will. And his actions may even be anti-Christian. Nevertheless, he'll still have to account for his responsibility as an image bearer before God at the end of time. God of the Bible is integral to life. And by the way, just... Just a quick comment on the great gospel that we've received, the gospel that we preach, that's so precious to us. The gospel we preach says, essentially, that you can go this alone if you want. You can go and you can try to be a perfect representative of God in whose image you were made and be condemned for failing. Or you can go through Christ's work alone and be accepted by the Father. Essentially, that's what the gospel says. Now, if this is true, and it is, then it's also the case that everything that takes place in the lives of people, especially God's elect, is under God's control, everything, without question. Paul gave this impression clearly in his evangelistic address to the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, When he was in the Areopagus, he said this, "...and God made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist." And he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's Acts 17. It's amazing to read that God has determined the appointed times of everyone's life, even down to the boundaries of their habitations. That's astounding. And let's not forget Pharaoh, Pharaoh of the Exodus, whom God raised up for a specific purpose. According to Exodus 4, verse 21, it was to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's Exodus 4:21. That's what it says. That's what God says. That was the purpose for which God raised Pharaoh. The sage says that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord and he directs it as a stream. So if God is at the center of life, if he has created all life for his purposes, then he has a plan for human history and he will fulfill it. Our verse from Isaiah 53 is a testimony to this effect. Isaiah says of God's servant, he grew up before god and that is a hebrew expression that means in the presence of god before god in the presence of god this servant grew up in the world living his life in the presence of god nothing that nothing took place in his life that caught god off guard on the contrary god ordained his birth his development public ministry and according to the rest of the this detailed chapter even his demise All that was taking place in his life, and we can be sure God brought it about just at the right time and in the right way. God had a plan for Messiah, and he has a plan for everyone saved and unsaved. We see glimpses of this truth working out in certain biblical characters. Paul speaks of God's plan for Isaac's two twin boys, do you remember? Jacob and Esau in Romans nine, ten and eleven, Paul said, Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for through the twins uh, I'm sorry, for though the twins were not yet born, and had not yet done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her the older will serve the younger. That was ordained of God, and that's exactly what happened. Here it's obvious that God determined the destiny of these two men and their relationship with each other. Perhaps the classic example in all of Scripture of what we're talking about is Jeremiah. In his autobiographical account, in the first chapter of his book, he says this, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. If it's true that God ordains every part of life for every person, and especially his redeemed own, you and me, and then brings it to pass just at the right time, then we have to include even the most deplorable of times in our lives as well. And we have examples of this throughout the Bible, too. Joseph, you remember, testifies to this in Genesis 50, in verses 19 and 20, in a reunion with his brothers. You remember, they came before him. They were terrified that perhaps Joseph might lash out at them for selling him as a slave when he was just a teenager. But we find Joseph teaching them about the sovereignty of God. And he says to them, Don't be afraid, for I am in the place of God. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God is so sovereign and so good that he uses even the wicked intentions of evil men to bring about his perfect will as he did here in Joseph's life. Paul also, his own testimony in 2 Corinthians 12, you remember in verses 8 and 9, that God brought against him a thorn in his side in order to humble him. God refused to take it away, even after Paul prayed and petitioned God repeatedly to remove it. And Jesus obviously is the quintessential example. He's the servant in Isaiah 53, Luke records Peter's sermon to the Jews in Acts 2, where Peter explains how God mapped out Jesus' life right down to who would kill him. Verse 23, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. uh, Yes, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Wow. God determined all of that. Right to the minutest detail. So I say again the most deplorable situations that God's people endure have been divinely appointed. I hope you believe that, and if not, then I convince you today before our study is over. God ordains all situations in life, and that includes even the worst of them. Now, we need to understand that truth because many Christians have a deficient view of God's sovereignty and firmly, are firmly convinced that God has nothing to do with personal tragedies. I've talked to many in the church who understand it this way. On the contrary, they're quite sure that God does not want Christians to endure these tragedies and would be very happy to take them out of these tragedies if they would only ask Him. And this, of course, not only flies uh, in the face of all we've just heard from Scripture, especially Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 12, but it also impinges upon the doctrine of God's sovereignty. How so? Well, if you are going to argue that there's even one small part of life that God's not in control of, then you're really saying that God is not sovereign. Really? Yes. Either God is sovereign of all or he's not sovereign at all. It has to be that way. And to suggest that God wishes that trials would not befall us is to argue at the same time that there's this force out there that, that rivals God and puts him through the paces. Well, as you read through this chapter, Isaiah 53, you'll see that everything this servant suffered is or was by the hand of God. He, God, is the primary cause, smitten of God and afflicted, verse 3. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on Him, verse 4. The Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief, verse 10. The most deplorable situations are divinely appointed. No question. No question. Now, that's not the whole story. If it were, that would be, well, very depressing. There's more. God may be the one who ordains the deplorable situations in our individual lives and in the life of our local churches, but there's good reason for him to do so. And that brings us to the second proposition. The most deplorable situations cultivate spiritual growth. That's also from this verse, a proposition from verse 2. The second proposition teaches us that such deplorable situations in our lives are good for our spiritual development. They have to be if God is good and brings them into our lives for our good. God works only for our good, never against us or for evil against us. Verse 2 indicates that the servant not only grew up before God, but he grew up before God. God prepared his servant to accomplish the purpose for which he originally sent him from birth to the end of his public ministry. The phrase that really communicates this is the second one of the verse, A root came from dry ground. The figure paints for us a graphic picture of vitality and strength that flourishes against all odds. Notice the agricultural metaphor here that Isaiah uses to address the condition out of which Messiah came. Dry, dusty ground, without moisture. It's really an unpromising condition for any plant. In fact, it's a hostile environment for plants. Plants will not take root and grow without the proper conditions. Well, the political, the social, and the spiritual climate in which, which Messiah would enter would be like this. Dry ground, hostile, unforgiving, a, a deplorable condition in which to bring Messiah. The character of the age was corrupt. Chapter 53 confirms this. Society did not receive God's Christ. Israel despised him, humiliated him, persecuted him because they did not see in him the things they considered prerequisite for Messiah. He didn't fit the bill. He, he didn't measure up, wasn't qualified in their minds. He would be rejected and forsaken of men, Isaiah said. But Isaiah's figure of a dry ground does not suggest that the root withered and died in this climate, as you might expect. No, rather it thrived. It sprouted forth with vitality in a terrible climate. It grew up against all odds. Nothing was right about the context, humanly speaking, but it was God's context in which Jesus grows and ministers, and his ministry bears fruit in season. His countrymen may have rejected him as Messiah, but but he was well-pleasing to God. He was the Messiah nevertheless and accomplished all that he needed to in a way that brought glory to God and salvation to his people. He was the mighty warrior that conquered death and took death's captives captive in his train and led them to glory from a human point of view the situation was not right for messiah we wouldn't have ordered it that way and we wouldn't have we wouldn't have planned it to happen quite in the way that it did would we have no no we wouldn't have jesus came as a baby not as a mighty king he was poor born to parents, a peasant carpenter, and a wife, not to nobility. He hailed from humble Galilee, which had a bad reputation. What good thing comes from there? He was not the people's choice, but he was everything that God wanted him to be. Everything worked against him, but this situation was exactly right. For God to introduce the Messiah into the world in the way that He did, and this is how God works, raising up his champions to thrive against unbeatable odds why does Why does he do it that way? because when when His will succeeds through through us our, we, we I- imperfect vessels, he is sure to receive the credit. people are sure to attribute the success to a God, to the God, to Yahweh himself. That's why. And this is how God works. We see then that the principle that the most deplorable situations cultivate the greatest spiritual growth at work here, and not just in the life of Christ. It's at work for God's people, the church. Consider what history has to say about the true church in bad times. The church grew stronger and faster and larger when it was persecuted. Acts 8.1 records, And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The church grew. It expanded in the crucible. context of Acts 12 is that Herod put Peter in prison, and when he found that Peter escaped, put out an all-points bulletin for him. In fact, he was so angry that the soldiers that were guarding Peter, he executed. But in the midst of all of this turmoil, we read in, in verse 24 of chapter 12, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. John Wycliffe came to a very dark England, but in that case the morning star was the more welcomed. Luther began his work in the church in an extremely difficult situation, but it was God's fertile ground for the Reformation. And though reformers were being martyred, we know that their blood only fueled the Reformation. As the phrase goes, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Spiritual climate, right before the First Great Awakening here in New England, was as bleak as could be, but perfect for Wesley and Whitfield's preaching. John Bunyan said of those young men in his church who swore that he was excited at the prospects of their salvation, he couldn't help but think what God would make of such men if he saved them someday. It is in thoroughly dry soil in which the root of grace grows. And these grim situations are impossible situations, humanly speaking, but some of God's best context for our spiritual maturity, church growth, and vitality of service. Our nation has known horrible times, And we are certainly seeing some unprecedented ones today, are we not? The current moral and social situation in America is also at its worst with the annihilation of babies still continuing, the new practice of mutilating children, and now the ever-present threat of world war. Who would ever thought? Life becomes more complicated now, more uncertain Not only that, but the church itself has been weakened by the infiltration of false teachers, some of whom have fallen away, but not without first doing damage. We've seen the aftermath. Other well-known Bible teachers compromised the truth for fear of man. We used to listen to some of them, read their books, attend their conferences. The sufficiency of Scripture is questioned in the and the minds of many in church remain psychologized, looking for answers to life questions outside the Bible, in every place. But not in the sufficient word of God. But let's not be discouraged at all of this, beloved. There are, these are the last days, and Jesus told us that all of this would happen. Let's acknowledge it, let's expect it to worsen, and let's keep in mind that the bleaker the scene, the stronger our Christian witness. The darker the scene, the brighter our testimony. I hope you're convinced. But let me go further. Proposition number three. The most deplorable situations are the times when God's strength is most magnified in us. I love this one. Read in verse 1 about the arm of the Lord there, the arm of the Lord, a figure that represents the Lord's strength. The mighty sovereign has revealed his power to a rebellious nation by means of this servant, in verse 2, who as lowly and despicable and weak and unattractive as he was, to the world is God's anointed one, Messiah, in whom God's great might would be demonstrated as He bruises the head of the serpent and leads a host of captives out of condemnation and into heaven. Now, the Lord Jesus puts death to death and He establishes eternal life for His saints. He's the resurrection and the life, as he said, calling men and women from the grave to be new creations and follow him. Only he's capable of bearing the sins of his people and atoning for them. Only he is capable of satisfying and appeasing the divine wrath of God and redeeming a people for God. Jesus, the meek and lowly, demonstrated his authority over demons And his audience noticed that he was the only one that spoke with authority, unlike the Pharisees. God accomplished his will through his suffering servant. And those of us who've died and been raised with Christ, spiritually speaking, likewise need to rest in the grace of God and depend on the power of the Holy Spirit as we sojourn through this place, this alien place. World, and as we testify to God's glory before it, God uses humble people and has no room in his kingdom for prideful ones. He fills his church with those whom the world considers foolish and weak and common. Paul preached in a manner unlike the great orators of the day, simply conveying Christ and him crucified and risen. He preached and lived his life by God's grace, which was enough to meet the challenges of his ministry. And it's all we need, too. It's all we need. God's strength is magnified in our weakness. And we, like Paul, should therefore boast all the more of our weakness, because when we are weak, then God is strong. Proposition number four, the most deplorable situations are deceiving for those who live by sight. Deceiving. Deceiving for those who live by sight. There's a good reason why people, both unbelievers and believers, see nothing good or useful about deplorable situations. It has to do with the lack of faith that they have. And to be precise, I mean that their faith is not squarely centered on the proper object, which is Jesus himself. In the case of unbelievers, faith is not even there to begin with. Uh, they've not received the faith that, uh, that justifies and sanctifies. So without it, they see with natural eyes and they'll judge the validity and usefulness of everything by sight. What possible good is there, they reason, in being falsely accused of of something or being persecuted? What's the good of a recession? How, how can any injustice ever benefit me or have any value for me? These are the questions that they have, and they're... They determine the answers on the basis of what they see and experience. This is why people without Christ find identity in their material possessions, in their upbringing and environment, in their achievements, and in their works of charity and kindness to others. There isn't anything else. Christians, however, know better because they possess saving faith in Christ. So why would they react the same way as the world toward deplorable situations, or some of them, or even us from time to time. What, what happens? What's the cause of that? Well, because, because we don't exercise faith that God has given us in Christ at that very moment. That's why. People who do this, they get all caught up with appearances. They're blind. they're blind to, uh, to the truth in a particular situation. They don't see with the eyes of faith. They, at that very moment, (coughs) go with what is seen but untrue, not with what is unseen but true. Sadly, circumstance plays a heavy role in the lives of believers when it comes to knowing God's will. I've actually worked with a number of Christians throughout my ministry who lived by faith and sought out God's will, not in the Bible, but in their circumstances. And they weren't ashamed at this at all. They thought nothing of it, actually. This is really how they were brought up in their particular Christian tradition. They'd be the first to tell you, well, I don't believe in signs and omens, but that's exactly what they're guilty of when they determine God's will by circumstance. How can we possibly know God's will by looking at a circumstance? Really, think about that. How are we to interpret the circumstance? What does our criteria come from? How do you determine that? Would we not interpret the circumstance that we're in according to our own bias as much as possible? It would seem so. We'd want to interpret it the way we want it to go. If you want to go into the mission field and you want to be a full-time missionary, but three of the most reputable mission boards in your estimation have turned you away, how would you interpret that? I would say there's at least three ways you could interpret that. You could say, well, I guess God is telling me to stay home and get a job. Or you could say, well, God must be testing me to see if I mean business. So I'm just going to go whether I have a visa or not, or whether I'm approved or not. In fact, I'll swim there if I have to. Or God is telling me, wait, I want you to go, but it's not time yet. Just just wait. So, you know, we could have as many interpretations of a circumstance as there are interpreters of it. The only way that we can discern God's will is by his word. That's how we determine whether God is, or whether, uh, whether God's word to us is, is yea or nay or whatever it is. It's by the word. It's either by direct command or by principle. Many times God's will for us will send us in a direction that's hard, that doesn't feel right doesn't give you a peace, as many like to say, that'll make conditions actually more difficult for you, that moves you farther away from your own personal preferences. And in those moments, if you evaluate the situation by what you see rather than by seeing, seeing through it with the eyes of faith to God's ultimate plan then you will steer off course and quite possibly wind up shipwrecking your faith. Happens all the time. You become like the Israelite spies in the book of Numbers who refuse to obey God by taking possession of the land because, well, giants are there inhabiting the land. And, of course, they were very afraid. They didn't believe that they could overcome them. When Jesus invaded history, humanity did not take him seriously. They they didn't believe he was who he claimed to be because he didn't measure up to their expectations. Their problem obviously was that they were judging him entirely by outward appearance. Everyone would look at him with natural eyes and see that he was not the political ruler that they had been hoping for. It wasn't Rome, that he was showing up, but the religious leaders of the day, they found all all this to be unattractive and undesirable enough to pursue his death. And from history's point of view, people may think that Jesus failed. He was eventually executed along with common criminals. He didn't make Israel an independent state. He didn't have very many followers nor was he God come in the flesh. But this is exactly the conclusion one comes to when one looks at the entire process with natural eyes. Circumstances simply point to the fact that people missed the point. Jesus is God. He did accomplish God's will, and it is a historical fact that the tomb was empty. For those in Jesus' day, and ours as well, to see him for what he really is, they need to see with the eyes of faith. They need to look beyond the physical appearances and circumstances and outcomes to the treasure that lay behind them. And so do we. And if we do, then we will see that deplorable situations We will see them as platforms for ministry. We will not be deceived because we don't see them with the natural eyes, but with the eyes of faith. Final proposition, number five. These times, these deplorable situations in life, they reveal just how spiritual truths escape the natural man. And by that I mean they really expose the true color of of a person's character and who that person really is. Isaiah asks this rhetorical question, Who has believed our message? That's in verse 1. But of course that's part of the context of this verse. Who has believed our message? The answer is assumed, no one has. Now part of the reason is because the message is so unbelievable. God's ways are so far above man's, his thoughts pass finding out. We, we wouldn't do things the way God does things. Paul gives the other part of the reason, though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because the, spirit, the, the spiritual things are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's the other part of this. They don't only assess God's um, will and things by sight, but they lack the spiritual capability of believing God's message and God's ways and his will. The message that we preach really then is a double-edged sword. We read in Luke 8, verse 10, Jesus' reason for teaching in parables. We heard some of this read from Matthew 13 this morning. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest they are told in parables, so that while seeing, they may not see, and while hearing, they may not understand. Sobering words. One part of the twofold message of the gospel is that God awakens people to spiritual truth so they will necessarily believe. Gospel is part of the divine means of awakening, which is why we must preach the gospel, to wake people up. However, that is only one side of the sword, one side of the blade, the side that cuts through flesh to pierce the heart and have its way there. That is the positive side. But the other side of the sword drives the wedge between the Lord and those who reject him deeper, and becomes his means of hardening the heart. Matthew 13, the parable, or the parallel passage rather, to Luke 8, says the same thing but then quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, which is where God calls Isaiah into ministry. And these two verses, verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 6, give us the purpose of Isaiah's preaching ministry to disobedient Israel. It wasn't the positive side of the blade. It was the negative side. He was going to preach to a rebellious people and God would harden them by means of the truth preached. And God said to Isaiah, go, tell these people, keep on listening, but do not understand. And keep on looking, but do not gain knowledge. Make the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears Dull, their eyes blind, so that they will not see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Jesus actually quotes this in Matthew 13, verses 14 and 15, as the reason why he teaches in parables in Israel. Same purpose. Here there can be no question that God takes the initiative to blind the, tr- blind the truth, or blind unbelievers, rather, from the truth, from so- some unbelievers anyway, while revealing it to others. It's true even today that the one part of the twofold purpose of the gospel is to further drive some unbelievers who hate God further away from him, essentially giving them what they want. Now, this, this is nothing to be cons- concerned about because it's not our job to bring about spiritual understanding in the hearts of unsaved people. We cannot do that. Nor is it our business, whom God spiritually revives. We cannot know that. He has his plan and will work it out in his own time. Therefore, we need to be concerned about preserving and proclaiming this unbelievable and offensive message to the world that God may use it for his glory first and foremost, and secondly, that he will use it to save those of his elect. the most deplorable situations imaginable in your life. They are divinely appointed. They cultivate spiritual growth. They there are times when God's strength is best magnified in you. And they are deceiving for those who live by faith. And they will reveal just how spiritual truths escape the natural man. These propositions are exemplified in the life of Christ. He's our model. They should excite us then. They should encourage us. They should embolden us. What is said about the servant will be true of us as well because it's never a good time from the world's point of view to hear the gospel, much less preach it. But of course, we know That the darker the times, the more brightly the gospel shines. And our God and Father, we are grateful for your truth, that you have preserved it for us, that we might know it and read it, ingest it, and live it out, that it would exude from every pore of our spiritual lives. We pray we would take comfort in these very sobering words And know that they are first and foremost true of our Lord, and that they are secondarily true of us. And if he lived by them, so should we, that we too someday may see you face to face and rejoice for your goodness to us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.